0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call Podcast. This is James Bolden. I'm the Publications Editor for the International Horn Society and your host this episode is very special for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that this will be the final Horn Call podcast episode before IHS 54. So this is going out uh, around the middle of July 2022. And of course, IHS 54 begins right at the end of this uh, this month at um, Texas A&M University in Kingsville. And uh, I will be there as well we'll... Uh, some of my students and uh, I hope to see you there. And uh, if, if you are unable to attend in person, I hope that you will um, keep up with it uh, in social media, the various ways the, that uh, the IHS is going to promote this uh, through social media and, and other channels, of course, this podcast podcast. Um, and, you know, of course, you can read about it in the Horn Call afterwards. Um, and if you are there, I hope that we get a chance to speak, even if it's only briefly. Uh, those of you that are attending, uh, safe travels and, uh, you know, good good luck with uh, everything. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a fantastic week. So that's, that's reason one. And then reason two is uh, our guests for today's podcast. Uh, among them um, uh, is one of the featured artists at IHS fifty four, Christina Masha Turner, and of course the the other uh members of the American Horn Quartet are uh not strangers in any way to the the international horn community, Jeffrey Winter, Carrie Turner, and uh not the regular fourth horn player Denise Triumph but a very special guest uh with the the group at the time that this uh recording was made, uh Frank Lloyd. Speaking of this recording, um, This podcast was part of the 2021 Northeast Horn Workshop. Uh, The the interview took place on March 27th, 2021, and this was one of the um, many virtual events that happened uh, last year and the year before. And I got to hand it to uh, the hosts, uh, Jonas Toms and Albert Hood from West Virginia University. They did a marvelous job bringing together just a a fantastic slate of guest artists. Um, Among them was uh the american horn quartet with with frank lloyd uh guest uh guesting on uh fourth horn in place of denise tryon uh and i think this interview speaks for itself of course the main thing here is uh i want to be sure to plug uh christina's uh appearance uh upcoming at ihs 54 and she has quite a lot to say in this interview about her time with the american horn quartet as well as uh a variety of other things um it's also worth noting that uh, Denise Tryon is a guest, uh, a featured artist at IHS 54. Also, although she's not on this interview, um, that's uh, a, another uh, a selling point of this interview with the American Horn Quartet. You're going to hear uh, half of that group as featured artists at IHS 54 this year. Um, one other thing I thought might be worth mentioning is that just prior to this podcast interview, the uh, American Horn Quartet had given a fabulous live-streamed performance from the Philharmonie in Luxembourg, and you'll hear uh, Carrie uh, reference that. Carrie Turner will, will make reference to that near the beginning of the interview. All four of the, the fabulous members of this group get to uh, give a little bit of background about themselves and uh, their horn-playing life and their journey, and... Um, I think there's just such a wealth of information here, it's hard to even put it into uh, words for this brief intro. So I'm going to let the interview uh, speak for itself, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with the American Horn Quartet live at the 2021 Northeast Horn Workshop. So glad to have you all here. And this is, of course, part of the Northeast Horn Workshop. This is a special live edition. Uh, live and in person, uh, at least virtually, of the uh, Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society, and I'll be your host today. But um, I want to put as much of the focus as I can on our special guest today, the members of the American Horn Quartet. So I think most listeners would probably be familiar with you, but maybe we could go around and just have you introduce yourselves. Sure.
1: Uh, Hi, James. Uh, First of all, my name is... uh, Kerry Turner, and I am actually a a dual citizen American and Luxemburger. So that's why we got this. This is where I worked for forever in the Philharmonia in Luxembourg. So uh, and uh, then pass it on to you.
2: I get my technology sorted out here. Hi, I'm I'm Jeffrey Winter. Um, I originally hail from Seattle, Washington, uh, but I left there probably in uh, 1980 was I think the last time I actually lived in the area and uh, started out playing horn in uh, Venezuela and then moved on to Germany and I've been principal horn in the Beethoven Orchestra of Bonn now since 1989 so that's quite a while um, and off to you.
3: Hi, James. Um, I am, like you, Christina Mosher-Turner. I am, like you, an alum of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm originally from Oregon, and I moved to Berlin in 1994 to do my master's degree there, and I just fell in love with Europe and stayed. So I was also, I played for five years in various orchestras in Berlin. And I was in the Odense Symphony Orchestra in Denmark for several years. I was solo horn of the Brussels Philharmonic. And then I moved to Luxembourg. And now I'm back in Brussels.
4: Hello, my name is Frank Lloyd. Um, I'm the only non-member of the group here, a guest. Uh, and I've very much enjoyed playing with the group again. My, my music uh, career started in Cornwall in the UK. Um, I, w- I was in the, um, in the Royal Marines for a few years before going to the Royal Academy and then to Scotland for my first orchestra. Um, After 19 years in London, after that, I went to Germany, and that was in 1997, where I took up the professorship at the uh, Folkwang Hochschule, which is now the Folkwang University of Arts. And I've just retired from there at the end of February, so I am enjoying my first few weeks of retirement, doing this.
0: Well, thank you so much. And uh, I, I do want to mention that uh, your regular fourth horn player, Denise Tryon, could not could not be here today, but I, I don't think you could have found anyone better to sit in that chair besides Denise.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, there's a little story behind this, actually. Uh, Jeff has actually, uh, sorry, Frank has actually played with the group as a replacement before. It has happened over the years that one of us could not get free for a quartet concert, so Frank has done it. But it all really came together in China at a Chinese, uh, huge Chinese horn festival, what, three years ago, and uh, where Denise was with us. That was our, the first launch of the new American Horn Quartet, and Frank was there as well as a soloist. So we asked him to join us on Kozlov Tetuan. and he also Denise went home early, so he joined us on a portion of those concerts as well. So he has tradition with us uh, as, as sort of the, the fifth
0: member of the group. Wonderful. And, uh, I, I guess I should have asked this at the beginning, just to make sure that I, I'm being as respectful of your time and schedule as, as we need to be, what, when do we need to finish this up? Cause I could, I could go for like six hours with questions about things, but we don't have that much time.
1: <laughs> it's, it's more or less open-ended They're, they're, they've been, they've been really, really cool here at the Philharmonie, very loose and very relaxed. And so, uh, you know we don't need to go forever but <laughs> but because we, we're tired of the concert but i like talking to you guys so uh that'd be no problem we can well sure just know, you, there's no there's no time limit particularly
0: okay yeah and you can kind of uh you can give me a subtle signal or something like this when it, <laughs> when it's time okay to be done.
1: <laughs> it's it's actually the only people we have to think about is our technical crew so whenever you guys are ready to take off let us know <laughs>
0: <laughs> they'll just cut the feed and they- <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> So uh, I thought a, a good place to start, and I want to just say first, I was I was at one of your first farewell concerts in 2015 in Los Angeles, and I just remember thinking, "Gosh, this is the end of an era." You know, it's uh, I I came up listening to American Horn Quartet recordings, as I'm sure many many folks out there did, and just I mean, I'd heard I'd heard horn quartets before, but then you know I I, I got. The, the well-tempered horn and, and listen to that CD. And it's like, my mind was just blown. And so I think it would be nice to maybe talk about how the quartet got started. You mentioned that all of you in various ways were, were working professionally in Europe. Um, how did you cross paths with one another? And, and how how did the quartet come to be a reality?
2: I think I'll chime in on that one for a bit. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the original American Horn Quartet um, was founded by uh, four Americans who lived in Europe um, actually in 1982 um, with David Johnson and Sean Scott and help me here. Uh, Bob Paid? No, no. John Levin and... Um,
1: Glenn Bjorling.
2: Glenn Bjorling. Um, and they got together and it was just to, to have a good time for the most part. Um, but then uh, David and John Levin decided, you know what? We'd actually like to... St- Try and make this go mainstream, um, and uh, Glenn and uh, the other fellow they weren't so interested. So John and David uh, started looking for other people to come and join the group to take it seriously. That is to say, try and make Horn Quartet uh, the same kind of ensemble you'd expect to see with string quartets or or with piano trios uh, in, in chamber music concerts. And uh, David knew me from Seattle because he also hails from that area um, and David heard Kerry play at the horn competition in Geneva in 1985 and so David and John said hey let's give it a try with these two fellas um, so we did and we got together and we spent many many hours rehearsing uh, repertoire, which we would probably never play again today because um, <laughs> it's probably a little bit too basic uh, for what our normal concerts would uh, entail. But what that gave us was a real thorough basis, a real um, fundamental understanding of not just uh, what it is to play music together, but how to make it work so that that we all breathe the same way, we all articulate the same way, we all do dynamics the same way. Uh, and getting into the habit of the interaction the discussion the respect that you have to show the other members in the group and that also means understanding that if somebody turns around and says hey i don't think that sounds right they're not attacking you it's because they're also interested in having it sound the best it possibly could be and oftentimes we've told uh, our audiences we'd rather have uh I'd rather have Christina come and say, you know, Jeff, I think we could probably tidy that up there and make that sound a little tighter than to have somebody after a concert walk up to me and say, gee, you guys played great, but how come it wasn't together at letter S or something like that? Um, you know, so it became our, our goal and we all worked really well together in trying to achieve a really supreme ensemble playing together in that sense. Um, you know, and at first that sort of took the priority, but then after we made things really hook up together like a machine, then we decided you know, we could say, okay, now let's try and put some of this idea musically here, this musically there. And, and that's how we developed into the ensemble that we became shortly thereafter, uh, winning competitions as in chamber music uh, situations where we're playing not only against other brass groups, but but woodwinds and string groups as well. Um, which showed that, you know, really we were able to achieve the same sort of level of playing that you expect to hear in in the most upper echelons of chamber music concert halls in in Europe, especially, and in the rest of the world as well. Um, Over the years, uh, various members have decided to uh, discontinue for for all sorts of reasons. John left originally in 1990 uh, because of health reasons. And actually, that's probably the same reason. Uh, Very easy to say that Charlie Putnam, um, who replaced John, why he had to retire as well. Um, he had a, a, a very close brush with death, um, and but fortunately everything worked out okay, but it was just then too much for him to continue uh, in with the heavy schedule of both orchestra and quartet at the same time. Um, David also came to a point where he couldn't do it anymore. And so that's when we managed to get uh, Christina to join us and which was a, a lucky thing for us because uh, we all really worked together so well. Um, Denise came along as Carrie explained uh, during a uh, lucky trip to China where Frank was there as well. And um, since then we've been trying to get back out there, but, but this virus thing has uh, you know, put a little bit of sand in the wheels.
0: Oh, Thank you. Uh, thank you for that answer. And, you know, uh, listening to you guys, I, I, Uh, It sounds like you still got it. So there's, I don't think there's any worries there as far as getting, getting back into the swing of things. So (laughs) I don't think anybody would disagree. So um, just, so, so going back to how, how you got to the level where you are, obviously you were, everybody in the group can play, but in terms of the intensity and the focus of a rehearsal i mean you know a lot of horn quartets they just get together and they read some quartets and they have a good time and then they go get a drink or some dinner or something and that's great and that's there's nothing wrong with that but in terms of you know preparing for a competition or you're trying to book gigs and and as you said you're in competition with all the other chamber groups out there trying to book a concert series or trying to book a tour um you know How do you get to that point of just making sure that you drill down and get to all those details? I I imagine we have a lot of students listening in or who will listen to the the recording of this. So, you know, tips and things to really take your chamber group to the next level or some things you've gleaned over the years.
1: I'll start with that. And then if you guys want to pick them on it, you can. Um, It's very important that everybody prepares their their parts well in advance and prepares them well because we in the early days we would meet on a long weekend we would we were young so we can go all day long we would rehearse. Six, seven, eight hours on a Saturday, and six, seven, eight hours on a Sunday, and and then we'd all drive home to our various orchestra gigs, and you know that was that. And we would, and then we would do that about once a month, and that's how we prepared for um, tours and concerts. And while while we were resting between rehearsal periods, we would discuss the business. Back then, we had Brass Bulletin and the International Horn Society Horn Call to help us with advertisement and organization. And, uh, but, you know, this was all pre-internet. So we were doing writing letters and making phone calls and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, uh, so it was a very different, different game. But, uh, I think the most important part about us working together is that everybody had to practice their parts well, well in advance. For this particularly, we had such limited rehearsal time. I was, we were even, sending emails back and forth about tempos. And, and, and I even found a recording of that Bach fugue we did. I heard on on TV that was much faster than we had ever envisioned. So I sent that to them and said, maybe we ought to up the, up the speed a little bit on this. We discussed that for a while. And uh, we were. this is even before we ever met and played. We were discussing all these details in advance. And, and we talked about the program and, and uh, who was going to talk and who was going to discuss what. So we did all of our preparation in advance so that when we got together, it, we could just be right to business and sat down and we started playing. And also cues were all written in our parts already. We Everybody had written it exactly who gives what cues, how long the fermatas are. It was all very well planned in advance. And it's always kind of been that way with the American Horn Quartet. We were, these guys were really, really... You know, hard policemen about making sure everything was written in your part and, and that you did exactly like you did the last time we met. You know, there were no, no free spirits suddenly in the middle of the group. And also we delegated responsibilities. So um, so one person I do, I obviously do a lot of the talking and a lot of the composing. And Jeff did a lot of the online work and all the computer business. Uh, We've kind of shared a lot of the hustling part of it. And uh, so uh, everybody dealt in after concerts, for instance, it was always Charlie's responsibility to pick up the folders and make sure we have our mutes because we were out front signing CDs or whatever. So we delegated, Um, different tasks, uh, uh, setting up chairs, setting up the shell behind us. Everybody had something they had to do so that not one person was holding the ball, which is so often the case. So often you have one guy that does everything and that guy gets really bitter and sick of it and and the group folds. So that's never really been
0: the case with us. Oh, that's that's an awesome answer. Well, sorry, I was sounds like I was about to jump in on uh, Christina's. uh, Go ahead.
3: No, not at all. It's fine. I was just going to kind of dovetail with what Carrie was saying that I think that one of the secrets of a successful chamber music group is that all of the members of the group share the same vision for the group. You have to make that group a high priority. If you decide, three of the people in a quartet decide, we really want to make it. We want to do competitions. We'd like to tour. We would like to make a name for ourselves. And the other guy, just like, now let's just drink beer and play quartets and go home, then you, everybody is going to have disappointment because you haven't decided that you all value the group in the same way. So I think that something that has made the American Horn Quartet so successful over the years is the willingness to make sacrifices for the group time-wise and uh, simply a matter of making that group and those tours absolutely holy so that you can shove all kinds of other things out of the way, paying for subs if you have to, whatever it takes. So I think that that's a very, very important element. Another thing I think that makes a chamber music group work is you can have four really stellar soloists in a quartet, but if you don't have the willingness to play together as a chamber group to listen to one another to subsume your own individuality into the group and then only you know, come out when you need to for solos then you end up with it's like some of these football teams where you have a bunch of prima donnas but there's absolutely no cohesion and they're not going to win games so i think one of our secrets is that we really think that the quartet is more important than the rest of us all put together
0: Well, that's fantastic. And I I was going to ask Frank a question since, you know, you've mentioned that you've played with a group before, but you were very much kind of coming into this program and, you know, filling in for someone, how, how do you approach, you know, it'd be like if you were subbing with an orchestra, right. And it's an established section and you're going to have to try to fit in. Do you have any tips or suggestions for those that, that may encounter a situation like that in their own careers of, you know, fitting in as quickly as you possibly can?
4: It's, um, Terry has already mentioned this as one of the most important factors at all is learning the dots. That's how we say it. Learning the music before you get there. So you can concentrate on the contact and the musical elements, the breathing, and all of the finer points of making music um, in ch- chamber music, um, and not wasting any time or, or diverting your attention to reading your music, learning, still learning your music. There's nothing more frustrating than being in a in a chamber group and, the, and there's one person who, haven't, who hasn't learned their music and is always two steps behind everybody else because they're still learning their part. That holds everybody else up and it's very frustrating and time-consuming until you can get them on board. And it's the same thing working with an orchestra. I'm quite often working with a a chamber orchestra. And the first thing I'll do is look at the rep. Oh, I don't quite know what what symphony is that. It's a Kurgle 543 or whatever. I'm going to look it up. What key is it in? It's really important for us as horn players. What key is it in? If it's going to be a a classical piece, uh, Haydn Mozart symphony, you really want to know what key it's in. So, And uh, if you need to, you're going to download the music. It's very easy to do that these days. And get prepared, so there's not any surprises when you arrive up, and you're not going to disappoint anybody who books you because you're a well-known player. You, they expect you to be able to produce the goods, and for you're doing it for your own benefit as well, um, playing to the standard that is expected of you. Preparation is really the most
0: important thing. I could say, thank you. Uh, one of the things that bef- before I heard the group in in person many years ago i had only previously listened to recordings of you and you know just listening to it as kind of an uninformed student i would have assumed that you all played the exact same horn the exact same mouthpiece and you know just because of the the cohesion in the group but obviously you all play different equipment depending on your own needs and 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 things like that so could you talk a little bit about maybe first at uh, people probably there are those that would want to know what kind of horn do you play and what kind of mouthpiece that that might be an interesting way to get into the conversation of you play different equipment, obviously, but how do you get similar articulation, similar sound to where it, it sounds like a great chamber group and not four different people?
1: I'll start and you guys can, can chime in. Um, it, when, when I first started with the American Horn Quartet, three of those guys were already playing Paxmans. Actually, John was playing a Con 8D, but uh, Jeff and Dave were playing Paxman triples and they told me straight away, you're probably gonna need a Paxman triple to play this rep. Mm. And I was playing an Alex 103, like so many people working in Germany. And uh, so I bought the Paxson Triple, and yeah, it did, it did up my abilities to play with the group. And it also helped the blend and establish the sound of the group. Over the years, we all kind of went rogue with different instruments. Now I'm playing a horn by Dietmar Dirk. Christina's playing on a uh, Rico Kuhn. And Frank, on this particular gig, you're, you're playing... Uh, you're playing your Alex. you have gone back to Alex 103. Uh, Denise, I think, plays a Rauch, right? Is what she usually plays with the group. So yeah, we play four different horns now. Jeff, you're still on your, Paxman? Yeah. So we all play four. Di- it is. An, it it kind of does go against traditional wisdom that says you have to have the same instrument in order to get that great blend. But in, anybody that knows, anybody who has played with great players, know that's not necessarily the truth. Um, so we, I working with these guys on this particular project. That wasn't a problem at all. Blend and intonation was not a problem. It was just individual being able to play the stupid horn. That was the hard part.
2: (laughs) I'll jump in here just uh, for a little bit. Um, Yeah, I'm playing uh, still a Paxman horn. Uh, It's a model 72 from 1987. For some reason, I've always been a big fan of Paxman horns from the 1970s and the 1980s, probably because that's... I encountered those horns when I was in college. Um, they were very popular in Los Angeles at the time, and uh, I've been chasing them down ever since. Um, but what we have discovered over the years is is that really, uh, yeah, a horn does influence the sound uh, that a, that a person has. But really, it's seventy percent who's playing the horn. Um, uh, you could hand uh, you know a horn like mine to. Frank, and he probably wouldn't sound all that different than he does on his 103, even though the instruments are incredibly different. The bores are very different. One is a triple horn. The other one is a, is a regular double horn. But because it, it's mostly the chops of the person who's actually playing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm convinced. I mean, I've talked to many horn players who listen to our CDs. And if you listen to them carefully, you know exactly who's playing what. You recognize, say, David Johnson's sound from, you know, back in the first CDs that we recorded. You know that that David is playing that line. You know that Carrie is playing that line. And Jeff or John, it's actually very easy to hear who's playing what. But that also gives you the advantage. You don't have four absolutely identical sounds. So you can can plan something. We have a piece by uh, a favorite uh, friend and composer of ours, Walter Perkins, and he wrote a concerto for us. Um, which is five movements It has an introduction and then four movements, each featuring one of the members of the group. And um, Walt heard us play and he thought, wow, David's sound is so big and round. I'll give him this, you know, improvisational, slow movement. carrie has got these, this fantastic technique and can just go everywhere. So we'll give him this super fast movement. Jeff's really boring, but he can play six eight really well. So we'll give him that. Uh, and Charlie, of course, playing low horn, he got his special uh, burlesque where he got to dance around as a low horn player in a piece that, yeah, very untypical for low horn because it was like a, something you'd expect a flute to play, but it was in the bass cleft, low horn. Um, So there are advantages to that as well, Uh, and we use that uh, to actually make our ensemble more uh, interesting for the audience to listen to.
0: Thank you. Now, now speaking of um, new pieces and new repertoire, you mentioned, of course, everybody should come into the first rehearsal, basically having learned their part, but let's say, you know, Carrie's working on a new piece for the group or wants to try some things out. How does that work in a rehearsal where you're basically tackling a brand new repertoire uh, for for your ensemble?
2: The first first thing I'd say is Carrie, if it's really hard, don't give it to me.
1: (laughs) Um, how do we do that? Well, we did we actually did this because before we did the last the last tour before the pandemic, uh, I had written in a, a setting of She Moved to the Fair, an Irish folk song that I've always loved. And um, I wanted to do some special effects in there that included Denise had to do multiphonics. So I contacted her and said, Can you do these multiphonics? Can you sing this while playing? And uh do we have? I wanted to have somebody leave the stage. And could you, as you do, you have enough time to leave your chair? And I asked them straight out, will you pull this off? Do you get up and leave you in that spot, play that, and come back. And so um, I, I'll i write the piece by hand, manuscript, um, thinking about the player. When I when I write on the, our arrangements and the compositions, it says K, G, uh, K, and D. It doesn't have first, text, second, third, and fourth. It has our initials of who's playing it. And I send it to Jeff, who uh, then will make nice computer parts for us, and uh, then we'll and then we send the parts out. Everybody has a chance to look at it, and we come back. Now, the thing about my music is that this group already knows how to play my stuff. so I don't need to explain that much, really. They pretty much know what, what's going to happen. In fact, they'll even change stuff. They've changed stuff very often in my pieces. Now, that is, let's do this. Let's switch that part. Let's, you know, There's been times, special effects when they've changed things. So they, they do that pretty well. When we have a brand new piece uh, that we're going to be working on, um, we have to sit like everybody else. We have to kind of sit down and reconstruct it and figure it out. I have the score in front of us and listen to a recording if there is one. Um, but but basically you know I'll talk them through it once on one of my new pieces or new arrangements and uh, they
0: pretty much get it right the first or second time usually <laughs> no that's great um, so for for those that have been you know like myself, as I'm sure many listening to this are longtime fans of, of the group, of, of the many, many tours and performances you've done all over the world. Uh, do you have any favorite stories? They, you know, they can be silly. They can be just sort of lighthearted. I mean, any, any anything that comes to mind? I know you probably hate questions like that, but anything that stands out to you?
3: There are so many stories. And I have to say, coming into the group rather late in its history, I think I started in 2008, 2009, I was the heir to hearing all of these stories. Oh, the last time we were here, this thing happened or that thing happened. And so I was so excited to finally make some stories of my own. Some of them are silly. Some of them are wonderful, but I do remember one moment that always makes me laugh when I think about it. We were on tour and we were heading on the ferry from France over to the UK, but officially you have to have a work permit. And the school that was having us as guests had not done the paperwork for us. So we had to enter very discreetly as tourists. And so Carrie made a point of saying, you know, maybe put your horns underneath something, be really discreet and just, you know, don't, don't let them know you're professional musicians because they'll start asking questions. So we got to the ferry. We had about half an hour extra time before we got on the boat, uh, standing on the docks. And so what do we do? We all pulled our horns out. It's <laughs> just started playing. And <laughs> Carrie about had a coronary said, put your horns away. And we thought this is great. So we're sitting there right on the edge of the ocean, playing the Siegfried call and playing Beethoven three trios. <laughs> so we, we do have fun moments like that too. <laughs>
2: There's lots of great tales we have from our first trip to Japan. One of them would take way too long to relate here at this point, but I just suddenly remembered another one. Um, When we went to Japan in 1994, is that correct? That's the competition? Um, And in Tokyo... The
1: competition was 92.
2: So 92, oh gosh, it was even earlier. Um, Well, it was a competition. We traveled out there at our own dime and we had no idea if we were going to be successful or not. Um, uh, But it turns out We were quite successful, and we ended up staying well, well, nearly three weeks, including the concerts that we won as part of our prize. And I remember when it came time to fly back from Narita Airport, um, the plane takes off late at night there to come to Europe, and uh, we had to check out of our hotel rather early. Um, So we had the whole day to kill with all of our suitcases and luggage. And uh, if I remember right, uh, we went to a market somewhere, and Kerry felt that you know, his attire for the plane was maybe a little bit, he hadn't had a chance to do laundry or whatever. So he thought he'd buy a t-shirt at the market. <laughs> now he remembers. And so he bought this t-shirt and it had some sort of kanji symbols on there. He didn't know what it meant. Um, but anyway, he changed his shirt and we went off to the airport and we got into the airport and people would, oh, they'd say something in Japanese, and Carrie's like, I I don't know, what's the matter? And they're going, oh, and they'd say stuff in Japanese. Of course, none of us spoke Japanese, and there were a few people who tried to translate it, and they were saying, ah, flying spirit, Um, spirit flies, Uh, spirit coming down. Um, And finally, it wasn't until we actually got on the plane Somebody spoke good enough English to be able to tell us actually what it was, and it was kamikaze. Kamikaze!
0: Oh my goodness!
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so we're getting on the plane. Everybody's, what's he doing on the plane with that shirt?
0: Don't read the subtext there. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> yeah, that was that was crazy.
1: I walked down, going down to the restrooms in the back of the plane, caused quite a stir. Went put my shirt on. Everybody stared at me in horror. But I have a, a short, funny story. We were in Melbourne at the National Academy quite a while ago, and um, we were doing a radio interview, like we're doing now, <laughs> I got an interview on the radio there. And uh, we sat around the table. The guy was doing, had the CDs prepared, and it was going well. And while he was talking to me he suddenly looked up above my head. I'm talking alone like I'm doing now. And he got up and left and left the whole studio and just left, shut the door and we're alive on the radio. So I just, just kind of took, took over the, over the interview. interview like, like so Jeff where, Jeff,
0: where are you from? How hard do you play?
1: And we just, I just kind of crotched on for about 15 minutes or it seemed longer. And then finally the guy came back in again and told us that the, a bunch of firemen just showed, showed up in the, the studio, studio and claimed there was a fire in the studio. studio.
0: But, but instead of
1: light. like, stop the, the broadcast, he just let me continue to talk and stay on, on kill time on the air while he <laughs> went over and checked out what the problem was. I'll never forget that.
0: He figured you're a performer. You'll just vamp till, you know, So <laughs> apparently <laughs> now, uh, Frank, I want to congratulate you on your recent retirement. It sounds like you're staying very busy even in retirement. What, uh, What's next for you? I, I don't think there'll be any shortage of offers for gigs and performances and things. But uh, how do you plan to to spend some of that time?
4: Well, the next um, gig I have is actually an online uh, online chat with Pat Hughes in uh, Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. in two in two weeks. I think one or two weeks. But as for performing, I've just um, cancelled a performance that there was going to be a Chamber Music Week in Norway at, uh, in June um, through various reasons. And otherwise, there's not really very much. There's some competitions this year and some summer camps. There's the uh, Kendalbets Horn Camp, which is going to be happening online in June. So that'll probably be the next thing. But I've got uh, a list of projects produced for me by my dear wife. Um, and I think the first one is painting the house mm. and and getting some projects done in the garden. So I think I'm going to be busy. And we're locked down anyway. So there's uh, we've just gone into now wave three, COVID wave three lockdown in Germany. So we're not going to be moving at least until April the 18th, when we'll have the next report as to how it's going to move from there. So um, there's lots of projects to do at home, apart from practicing the horn. Um, so, so I'm, I'm going to be kept busy in one way or the other. Well,
0: I, I hope I wish you the best with, with all of that. And I, I hope that, uh, uh, you remain in good health. I know that you're also an avid birding, uh, fan. You share that with my former teacher and Christina's former teacher, Doug Hill.
4: Oh yeah. Great. I found some really nice, really good, uh, live feeds from, uh, American bird tables that, um, you can log into and it's, and it's a live stream. And as I'm practicing, you can just have that on and just passively watch the birds and have a bird book close by from the Audubon so you can check out the different species because there was one really cool site which is situated in Alabama, and they just um, down, the warblers are just starting to migrate, so it's getting really interesting because they' going to be they're going to be coming through on the way north. so that's very interesting and that's yes,
0: as you just. Said that's one of my hobbies. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's quite relaxing to 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 watch. Yeah, there's no yeah because you, you
4: yeah you don't have to participate. You can just be very passive about it, but it's really <laughs> interesting. Increasing Good. my uh, my American my U.S. bird count.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I want to thank you all again so much for giving of your time. I know you 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 want to go celebrate this fantastic concert you just gave. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. I had two kind of I guess big picture questions, and the, you know we, we'll kind of let these kind of play out. Uh, the first one is, and I like to ask folks that have had you know, such amazing careers as, as you have and continue to have, are there things you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out? You know, if you, could, if you could talk to yourself 25, 30 years ago and say, hey, you're going to want to know this. What, what's, what's one or two things you would just kind of wish you would, had known getting out of the gate?
3: Uh, One for me might sound counterintuitive, but I think I would go back and tell my former self not to over-prepare for auditions because I, I I tend to get a little bit obsessive with it. I know a lot of people have this method that they go through six months before, three months before, and they have this incredible checklist. But I find when I go into too much detail, too close to the event, then I lose my focus. So I have to start off with kind of a big picture and then work my way into the details. But towards the time of the audition, just relax and just play and just go out there kind of with a almost like a killer instinct and just go for it. And I think that quite often when I was younger, I would choke up because I was so stuck in the details. And I wish I had known that at the time.
2: i oh, um, sort of answer that question backwards um i'll look back at something which i did do which i would highly recommend to anybody else at this point um and that is uh competitions um Mm -hmm. when i first went to europe i know i was just happy that i'd gotten the job and uh, it was only after i'd met up with david and with carrie i realized hey i'm still young enough to actually do solo competitions not Mm -hmm. just with the quartet but uh, uh, as a soloist as well and um you know, looking back at that, that was one of the smartest things I ever did, um, it really helped me train and focus uh, to prepare pieces at really the highest level I possibly could. Um, so that's something I can encourage uh, all aspiring musicians to do, not just horn players. Um, I was talking to Frank the other day, um, and one of the things you know, I hear now is the level of horn playing is so much higher than what I can hear. Uh, nowadays than it used to be. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if I would have had any success at the competitions that I did, but I'm really glad that I did do them now because it really taught me what steps you have to do to work a piece up to the level where you can really make everybody pay attention and listen to what you are saying with your music.
0: Mm, that's great advice. Go ahead, Kerry. One,
1: one quite serious. And it sounds worse than it really is, but I wish that I wish somebody had told me exactly how boring orchestra life can be. <laughs> it's pretty astounding, especially when you're used to playing the horn quartet or with Christina as a duo, or as a soloist, um, you sit down in the orchestra and my job here for many years was on third horn. And it's, it was astoundingly dull. A lot of the time, <laughs> the concerts were spectacular. And that's not to say I was better than they were. They were really great. It just, the rehearsals were so tedious and long and day in and day out. And, I think t- t- you have to really analyze if you're a horn player or a musician in general, is orchestra really something you can do for the rest of your life? Cause it could be most players that I know have found times when it was just intolerably dull. And, uh, I think I would have liked to have known that. And the other thing I wish that I would have known is I should have moved to New Zealand back last February because those guys yeah. really came <laughs> out of this really darn well.
4: And I would have just <laughs> stayed down there for a solid year and a half. <laughs>
0: Good point, good point.
4: (laughs) For my part, um, I would have um, worked more on my basics then because I I really ended up having to do things in reverse. Um, I could always play stuff and I I left out a lot of the real basic technique of, of horn playing and it wasn't until I'd already been in an orchestra for two or three years that I realised things were going to have to change, and because uh, coming from the Marines, I had um, I got a lot of bad habits. A lot for marching band and everything, I'd got a lot. I was using a lot of pressure, and it's like I said, I could always play stuff, but it was really not going to hold me in good stead for the duration. And so I was already in an orchestra by then and I realized I was really going to have to change things. So we're moving back to London, going to the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, I moved to Third Horn primarily, and it gave me a chance to start working at my technique. Now a good a good technique is not flying around playing fast stuff. It's, it's getting your support right, your breathing right, and, and all of the basics which gets the air moving and how you're going to use that air. That is the most important thing that we have, and I didn't really have that then. and I had to go back to the beginning again. I would have liked to have had a really good training. My first teacher wasn't even a horn player. Um, have a really good grounding on that because a good technique, breathing, support, system is going to get you a lot further than just good talent. Technique is going to be more important. That will hold you in good stead and and last you through your career um, primarily. That's something I wish that I would have had a chance to have had and not have to play catch-up later on, several years down the line when I was already professional. and Going back to square one as a professional and doing your basics uh, and having to still play to the standard expected of you and make changes at the same time is...
0: Not a lot of fun, but it mm-hmm. was necessary. That's amazing. That's probably several lifetimes worth of professional advice from the four of you in, in you know, five short minutes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, well, and I guess to wrap things up, I think this being uh, the, the Horn Call podcast, it might be a good place to kind of bring things to a close by asking you um, – to maybe share just a little bit about the importance of the International Horn Society to you either personally or to your to your group as a whole uh, however however you want to you want to tackle that question I would normally defer to madam Vice
1: President for that, but uh, I can say a few words. I mean I've been a member forever, interestingly enough, I wasn't a member when I was younger. Uh, but William C. Robinson was one of my teachers, and he was very instrumental in setting up the International Hornsight. But he was the first president, and uh, or the first, he started it, the organizer, and he basically uh, insisted that I join. When I moved to Europe, it wasn't a big thing over here, inside I stopped being a member of that. But when the American Horn Quartet started, and we played, we were invited to the the, the huge celebration, what 20th anniversary in Tallahassee. And I saw the huge support that people had the almost bordering on fanaticism for not only horn and horn play all kinds of horn play from, from jazz to, to, uh, to, you know, avant-garde and classical repertoire, but they really liked us a lot and they've always been our our principal fan base. And so I, I started a whole love affair with it. And over the years, You get to know so many people from around the world, and the only time you see them is when you go to the IHS things. And when the American Quartet travels around the world, we meet up with these wonderful people again. But it's wonderful to have this big sort of family reunion at the International Horn Conference.
0: I agree.
3: Uh, my very first membership in the IHS was a gift from my teacher in high school. It was Professor Edward Cameron at the University of Oregon, an incredible man. He sadly died back in 1993 of cancer, but he had started up the Emerald Horn Club, the Green Hornists, and as a young, fresh-eyed horn player, I was so excited to come down and play with some adults and play horn ensembles. And I still remember my last year of high school that he had a guest there and said, oh, yeah, um, you, you remember that book that I gave you last year, of Phil Farkas? Well, he's going to be here tomorrow. So uh, his daughter lived in Eugene, and I got the chance to meet and chat with Philip Farkas. And so for me now, I realized at the time, I thought, oh, he's just a guy that had the funny pictures with the embouchure in his book. But <laughs> I realized that actually he's kind of the, in many ways the father of American horn playing. And that was an incredibly important experience. Um, many years later, I rejoined the International Horn Society. My very first uh, regional workshop was Mid-South in 1990. And I still remember hearing Freud's whistling duets with herself and thought that was pretty remarkable. But also, I was so impressed with the, the variety of horn players that would show up for these events. Uh, many years later, I went to the International Horn Symposium in Valencia. And was able to perform there. And that's where I found my Rico Kuhn horn. And gradually in London, it was Ken Pope who convinced me to uh, stand for the advisory council. That was seven years ago. And these last seven years have been remarkable. I, I don't think I would have ever expected how much of my life it would take over in really good ways And I've had the opportunity to be the editor of the digital newsletter for the past six years, Horn & More, and help a lot of people tell their stories. And I've also been the vice president now for the past five years. One of my main goals has been to, once again, to bring the I back into focus in the IHS, to make it a very international organization and to kind of ramp up the, the participation in Europe, in Asia, and around the world, because we're a global family of horn players. And that meant a lot to me.
4: Well, as you probably know, I've had a long, long association with the International Horn Society, um, but it goes back a long way. My very first uh, experience with the with the International Horn Society was as a Paxman pl- player, invited to the Montreux Horn Workshop way back in the mid seventies, um, when it was in conjunction with the with the Brass Symposium as well. It was a joint symposium, mm. and um, I was invited to play. On the stage, we were we were walking around playing a quartet, and it was arrangement of the Bach Badeniri from the B minor flute. I'm thinking with it, crazy thing. And Barry Tuckwell was walking past. He heard us playing this, and he said, "You're playing that tonight on the stage." So we were straight up on that stage. From that performance, I was invited to the International Horn Society workshop in East Lansing a couple of years later, and that was really that that did my gave my career a huge boost because then. From then on, I was asked again, and, and so developed the long and wonderful association I've had with the International Horn Society, um, performing at many workshops, um, becoming an honorary member and uh, president of the uh, of the Horn Society twice, and uh, it's been a great honour to be a member, and I've found and, and met so many wonderful people and so many friends, which I know I'll have in, in my heart for the rest of my life. And... I will, I will not forget such wonderful times we've had on the uh, on the symposia throughout the years, and uh, like I said, I've got some really very fond memories and some great friends that I've met
2: along the way. I remember as a youngster hearing about the International Horn Society, but um, and even though I was um, I had a lot of talent as a youngster playing horn, and I loved playing in orchestras and bands. Uh, my parents didn't seem to think it was a priority to invest the money in a membership, or let alone attend a, a festival, even if it was nearby. Um, it wasn't until I was in the American Horn Quartet and uh, we were invited to play at the uh, and the IHS in Tallahassee that I really said, you know. I there are so many wonderful people here, uh, people that you, you, you get stuck in your orchestra, you've got these three or four or five people that you deal with all the time, and maybe you get asked to play in an orchestra somewhere nearby once in a while. That's not a very big world. It's not a whole lot of horn players, um, but the IHS and being able to attend, especially one of the international symposiums, you get to see so many wonderful people and it's like you saw them yesterday. And that's why for myself, it's really a treat every time I do get a chance to attend. Um, it's, it's the social and interacting with other people and being able to hear what other people have done with their, with their horn playing since the last time you saw them. It's, it's really a wonderful organization for keeping in touch.
0: I want to thank all four of you again, Frank Lloyd, Christina, Masha Turner, Jeff Winter, Carrie Turner for uh, giving so freely of your time for this uh, live edition of the Horn Call podcast. And congratulations again on your recital and good luck with everything and be well. And I hope to speak with you and see you in person as soon as possible.